This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Great. It's always a delight to be here at this group. It's been going for a long time, and I um, I actually attended the night that it opened, and uh, Ayatata Loka was here to bless the group. It was really a sweet time. So I always have those good memories when I come back here. So I want to tell a couple of stories to start off this talk, which is titled Inner Ecology. I recently had a um, computer fellow come to my home to work on my computer, and I, when he came in, I offered him a chair, and he, you know, he sat down, and he then immediately reached into his back pocket, and he pulled out a switchblade, and he put it on the table, <laughs> and um, I sort of looked at that and he said, oh, I just got this new knife, but unfortunately it has this screw that sticks out and every time I sit down it pokes me in the butt so I have to get it out. So, and then he said, okay. So then he turned to the computer and he said, oh, this is a nice computer. And I said, uh, well, uh, you know, a benefactor helped me buy that computer. And um, his eyes lit up and he said, a benefactor? And then he said, I wish I could be a benefactor to someone. It was really sweet. Um, So you see the complexity of people's minds um, and the complexity of what we have inside of us, right? And then a, a second little snippet is that I had an email exchange recently with um, somebody asking about a problem that they had and the exchange ended and a, but I, a few days later I kept being nagged about something in their email but I wasn't sure what it was and so I went back and I dug it up and read it again and I discovered that in the final paragraph um, of one of the earlier emails in the sequence she had asked me uh, to keep confidential that um, we had had this uh, about what we were talking about and I hadn't really acknowledged that, you know, I had just responded to the content of her email and so I wrote her another message and said, oh, I just realized that I never acknowledged that last part about it being confidential and I just wanted to let you know that it is. And she was very appreciative of that. So we'll see how these examples come together in in the talk I want to offer. So the mind that we have, you may have noticed, even if you haven't meditated for very long, that the mind is like a whole world unto itself. It has so many different intentions, desires, patterns, habits. It's really a whole world inside. And in some ways we might kind of cringe at this because we know, you know, having seen some of what's in our mind, right? 
Um, but, you know, there are also ways to see the mind that are really um, almost awe-inspiring. You know, my, my teacher, Gil, gives a lovely image where he, um, he has people imagine that you come to a door and you open the door and you step through it and they're all that's on the other side of the door is a little balcony and it looks out onto this vast you know vista of mountains and lakes and clouds and sky and just amazingly gorgeous and you just all you can do is say wow and the um the implication is that our mind gets to be like this through practice it's just like you know it's wild and free and has all these components to it and at some level uh, you know we we could just say wow (laughs) amazing that all of that is there so I think it's helpful actually to think of our our mind or our heart mind combined if you will as a whole ecology and this provides a number of metaphors that are helpful for practice and they may serve, if we think in this way, to kind of mm, maybe correct some of the overly limited metaphors that we've been working with. I mean, every metaphor is limited, so I'm trying to give you a new one tonight to see if it's helpful or shakes anything up. Um, Often our ideas, we always have some idea about how we're doing our practice inevitably, and it's usually okay for a while, and then at some point it isn't um, serving us anymore, so uh, the ecology one's not going to serve you forever either, but let's see what we can do with um, looking in this way. So if you think about it, cultivating an ecology is not really the same thing as cultivating a single plant or even a crop, you know, like the, the house plant that's sitting in your window or even your backyard garden. Uh, you, know, you know, an ecology is a little bit more complex in its components, um, but also simpler in that an ecology is kind of self-sustaining and once you get it balanced, it could go by itself, right? That's the idea. Whereas that house plant on your shelf is going to need watering every three days forever. And so there's a sense where the ecology is more complex, but maybe also simpler. There's certainly some active work to be done to balance an ecology, um, but in the end it's a wild system. And so it also offers the helpful understanding that this is not really our project, like a a garden is, say. Um, Yeah, it's not so constructed in that way. So what I did to organize this is to come up with a few principles that might apply in working with an ecology. And of course, there are many, many more in the real world ecologies. I'm not a full-fledged ecologist, but I picked out the ones that are uh, relevant in speaking about meditation practice and the cultivation, that word is actually used, the cultivation of our mind and our heart. So the first principle that I identified is that we learn that we need to look more broadly than exactly where we think a problem is. And I'll, I'll exp- expound a little bit what that means. But you know, we tend to have a t- 
tendency, especially in the West, that's very kind of logical and linear in the way that we think, is that, you know, we feel like if there's an issue with X, then we need to work on X. You know, that's where the problem is. If my elbow hurts, the problem is in my elbow. I need to do something about that. Or, in the case of the mind, if I have... Um, difficulty with anger, I should go to anger management classes. You know, that's, that's how to do it. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. <laughs> I think if your elbow hurts, you should probably go to the doctor and say that you know, point at your elbow. But um, it might be more complex than that, right? So, for example, um, if you consider a, a hill that has a problem with erosion and there's you know, troughs kind of falling away and things being washed down the hill, um, how is it that we're going to work on this? If we think the problem is that these troughs are forming and the hill is eroding right there, we might um, you know, fill them in with dirt. <laughs> and this doesn't help at all, right? It does nothing to actually solve the problem. It'll just get washed away again. Instead, what we would need to do, say, is construct a central channel that allows more of the water to go there, and then it won't erode the other parts of the hill. But even that isn't quite sufficient. Probably we also need to plant trees and plants up above to whose roots will hold the soil. So that is a whole different idea than just focusing exactly where the problem is, right? So the same kind of things apply in the mind. There are so many other connected factors. So I mentioned this anger thing. So you can go to anger management classes. You can go to nonviolent communication classes. I think that would be good. Um, And we might also need to consider the bigger system, For instance, anger is often, or it can be, frustrated desire. Your problem might actually be attraction and not aversion. I know a teacher who thought that she was a greed type. Um, We're supposed to have various mental types, like our favorite issue. She thought she was a greed type for years and years and years, all the way into being a teacher for a while, until somebody pointed out to her that she was really probably an aversive type. And she didn't like that. She wanted, she preferred to be a greed type, but it wasn't to be the case. Um, and she, when she looked more carefully, she discovered that she was actually an aversive type after you know several decades of practice. Another thing, just going with the anger example, is that um, unexpressed anger can manifest as bodily pain, for example. It's um, fairly common that when we have some kind of unexpressed emotion of any kind, but anger in particular, um, we can have, uh, say, tightness in our shoulders, or we can even have you know, frozen limbs, things like that. I wonder sometimes how many people are seeing medical doctors for chronic puzzling conditions that simply aren't physical in their basis. You know, we don't really acknowledge that very much in our society. There isn't a place for that. But in the ecology of the mind-body system, totally, you know. This is the whole basis, actually, of many Eastern branches of medicine, such as Ayurvedic or Chinese medicine. They look more in that way. Westerners can get put off by the particular systems that are used with elements or... um, 
food types, things like that. But what they're speaking to, regardless of the structure that they use, is this interconnection of mind and body that allows us to have a much more holistic uh, view of our health. Our mind-body system is quite complex. (laughs) And in my experience, only meditation can really tease out uh, what is going on in our various tangles. And I use that word not, uh, that wasn't a funny word that I made up for this. That is used in the suttas of the Buddha, the discourses of the Buddha from 2,600 years ago. He used the word tangle to describe what it is that we're working with in meditation. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Can you get this tangle idea? Yeah, I see some nods. So for example, here is a a quote from the um, Samyutta Nikaya. A tangle within, a tangle without. People are entangled in a tangle. Gotama, that's a name for the Buddha, I ask you this, who can untangle this tangle? This was a question from a Brahmin. And the Buddha responds, a person established in virtue, discerning, developing discernment and mind, a practitioner, ardent, astute, she can untangle this tangle or he. It actually says he. It's interesting. Like The tangle of our body and our mind is to be untangled through virtue, discernment, ardency, and development of the mind. Hmm. This is why we're given, you know, all these teachings that are kind of interrelated, and sometimes they seem like they're not pointing at the right thing, right? Kim tells you to focus on the breath. And you're thinking, the breath? I have to think about that important relationship problem that I have. That's where it's really at. Um, How's the breath going to help with that? Well, just like anger can manifest as bodily pain, focusing on the breath can help your relationship problems. It's at least plausible, right, given this ecological model. So I would encourage um, considering the, the larger system a little bit more. It's, we have to encourage our Western minds to do this. All right, so the second ecological principle that happens um, that also applies to practice is that we need to revise our notions of what is good and what is bad. This is particularly true when you start looking at nature, which is, nature is pretty much just how it is. There's not so much good and bad there. But, um, you know, for example, in a natural system, forest fires are not necessarily bad. You know, we see the problems that happen when we don't allow them to happen. We've decided all forest fires are bad. We prevent them completely if we can. And then we have bigger ones because the underbrush never gets cleared out, in a sense. So, you know, you have to manage these things. But it's, um, floods are not necessarily bad. Earthquakes are not necessarily bad. They're bad for the people who are directly affected, for sure. Um, But when you look at the total ecology, um, these things serve some function also in a natural system. I want to tell a story of a, a tree a type of redwood, there's a, a way that redwoods can be albino. There are albino redwoods. They're not very common, 
but they're interesting. They have um, silvery needles because they don't have any chlorophyll in them. They're very pretty, actually. Um, they're called the ghosts of the forest, and they're they're striking. You know, against a green forest to see a silvery white, not really white, but silvery tree. Um, and they, of course, though they can't manufacture their own food through photosynthesis, so they live by um, entwining their roots with a, another tree, one a tree that, that is has chlorophyll. And they're usually small because you know they just live down at the base of a big tree and they kind of suck off the roots. Um, and so I got interested in these because there is one, by the way, at um, Henry Cowell State Park down in Santa Cruz. It's quite cute. You can go look at it. Um, and so I started reading about them, and I found that the literature online about them is very dismissive, written by Western scientists. For the most part, they are critical of these albino redwoods because they are parasites. They um, pretty much just suck away part of the life of a normal tree. And you know, there's some question then among people who work with evolution, like why, do, why does evolution allow these things to persist? as pure parasites. Um, So I see a little bit of bias coming from our Western culture, which tends to value uh, independence and competence, and these trees are neither, (laughs) in a sense. So, um, but then it did turn out that somebody actually researched these trees, and they did some careful research where they tried to learn what is really true, uh, instead of going with their own ideas. And it turns out that albino redwoods have a greater ability to remove toxins from the soil than normal redwoods for some reason, something about their chemistry. And so the tree that hosts one of these enjoys healthier soil around it by having this tree at its base. So I suppose there's a lot of lessons that could be drawn from that, but the one I'm highlighting is that we may not be sure what role something is playing (laughs) until we maybe dig a little deeper. So in the same thing in our mind, you know, we may have that part that we're sure is not supposed to be there, um, but maybe maybe it's serving some function. Now, I don't think blatant outright suffering needs to be there in the mind. We are, of course, going to uproot eventually the things that cause suffering, but we have to be careful being exactly clear what it is that's um, that's causing the suffering or how it's all interlinked together. Um, it's possible to go into our mind and make a lot of judgments about this, this part's good, this part's not so good, take our machete and try to cut out the bad part. Uh, there's a lot of meditators trying to do that. And um, I don't know. <laughs> be a little careful what you cut out, just like be a little careful what you rip out of the garden, you know? Um, just as a concrete example of that, I guess I could say that um, sometimes people learn about, mm, they learn about, for example, the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, so impermanence, uh, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And so they learn that these are like the, the Buddhist high perceptions that you're supposed to have and the big insights that you're supposed to have. And then they also, though, um, have this feeling 
like they want to be safe and happy and um, supported and have an easeful life. This is called metta, <laughs> love for oneself. And um, so then they, they say, well, everything is unsatisfactory and impermanent and not self. And I want this ease and safety and health and peace in my life. They don't look compatible. Therefore, I'm going to cut out the part that wants stability because everything is impermanent. I'm going to go with the deeper wisdom. I've seen this in people. It's not a good idea. They're actually compatible. Um, We need to go deeper and find the place where those two actually come together. Um, The wish for safety and stability and ease in our life is not the thing that has to be cut out, even as we learn to understand impermanence and not self. It's also true among these notions of what is good and what is bad, quote-unquote, is that some challenge is actually good. We can understand this, right? So um, when they were growing, when they were working on Biosphere 2, you remember that in Arizona? They, um, they had trees in there. And it, it was interesting that the... At first they were puzzled, but the trees would grow for a while and then they would fall over. And they'd plant more trees and the trees would go for a while and they'd fall over. And it turns out, and they would say, what's the matter with these trees? These trees do just fine outside. turns out there's no wind in the biosphere and trees have to have wind as they're growing because then they they hold on (laughs) stronger, like that sea plant on the sea floor, right? Um... So they hold on, and so a little bit of challenge, if there's no challenge in the environment, the tree grows up straight and tall, and then it falls over because its roots aren't broad enough to support it. So there's a way in which we want to have what are called appropriate challenges in our life. And that doesn't mean, that means finding a a balance. So we, we don't want difficulties that are too much for us and kind of overwhelm or traumatize the mind. And that, you know, that does happen. And it's just, it does happen sometimes. But at the same time, um, if we want to grow and develop a strong heart, uh, there needs to be some, some challenge there. There's actually a prayer said by Thai monks that where they ask for appropriate challenges. <laughs> they, um, they pray that they will have the right challenges in their practice to completely open their heart and completely eliminate suffering. Interestingly, um, I think it's quite healthy. I mean, this is what the Noble Truths asks, ask us to do. The First Noble Truth says that we should turn towards suffering and understand it. Why do we want to do that? <laughs> Often people th- come, well, sometimes we don't have a choice, right? We come to practice because of our suffering and we have to look at it. But remember that again and again, we want to be turning toward that. Why? Because we want to challenge the mind with that. Challenge the mind to see the suffering so that it grows in just the right amount so that it gets strong and can actually uh, let go of its, of its habits, of its deeper cravings and clingings. It's actually quite practical. Um, this is a quote from John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, in 2017 that he gave at 
a middle school graduation speech. Isn't that sweet? The Chief Justice spoke at a middle school graduation. And here's what he said. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, just from time to time, so that you will understand the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others, and I hope you have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. For middle school kids. So, one secret (laughs) to walking the path well. Yes, from John Roberts. (laughs) Can't believe that that guy would be quoted in the Dharma talk, huh? But the Dharma is for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So one secret to walking the path well is to actually seek out appropriate challenges in some ways, um, to do what is hard and grow from it, and to have some discernment to know, of course, you know, what what that level is for you. Um, It's not to do what society considers hard or what your parents say is hard or what your friends dare you to do. It's only what you feel inside would be the right level of challenge for you. Um, please don't seek out situations that will bring severe harm or danger, <laughs> but there are always um, ways to artfully challenge ourselves and to try something we haven't tried before. I think we make our whole ecological system more robust. In this case, the ecological system of our body and our complicated mind. So the third principle is that thinking in terms of an ecological system gives a more coherent sense of the goal of practice, I think. Um, If we're thinking about rehabilitating a damaged ecological system in some way, what would we do? We We would work to restore balance, and then our final act would be to let go of our efforts and let the now healthy system run itself, right? So this is a great image for our practice. We are not practicing to become some kind of an ideal self. This is not a self-improvement project. At least that's not what the Buddha was teaching. Um, And neither is the idea to somehow stop being a self. Uh, That doesn't really work either, to diminish to nothing, to have no role, That's a misunderstanding of not-self. So instead, we're first making our mind into a healthy, skillful ecosystem that's balanced, resilient, um, and then we're letting go. We're letting go of it in some way. So the teachings, for example, on the Eightfold Path cover really all aspects of our life, right? Work and relational life, our intentions and views, the deep cultivation of our mind in meditation, there's really not an area that's untouched by the Eightfold Path through its 
uh, emphasis on ethical conduct, on mental development, and on wisdom. Those are the three areas. And so to walk the Eightfold Path is to transform our whole life in certain ways. And the teachings even say, one who possesses this Eightfold Path is called a liver of the holy life. I like that. Or a liver of the spiritual life. Something like that. So there's a way in which what we're doing is to make peace with our diverse and multifaceted mind, um, cultivating an awareness of the whole system. So this is like when I felt unsettled about that email exchange, that I, the story I told at the beginning. Um, there was something in my mind when I kind of held my whole awareness, you know, what's going on in my life, there's this little niggling thing on the side that says that email. There's something about that email that was out of balance. And so, you know, because I have this, you know, kind of overall sense, I felt like, okay, that's the area that needs to be rectified. Let's go have a look. And sure enough, there was something there. So I like the word alignment, you know, the sense that we're kind of moving moving into an alignment of some kind internally. And I, so I encourage, um, if you've been practicing, especially if you've been practicing for a while, but even, you can even do it from the start, is to hold the whole body and mind system um, as one in the awareness from time to time. We do need to zero in. We have to dig deep. Um, we have to look at the elbow when it hurts sometimes, that kind of thing. And yet, now and then, it's helpful to step back and look at the whole system and feel, is there something that's um, kind of not in balance? And then move it toward balance. I don't think that we ever get something into a state of static balance, you know, like the items on this table are what's called static balance. You know, they're just sitting here supported by gravity. Whereas your living body is a system that's in dynamic balance. Can you see the difference? Your body is changing right now. You're digesting your food. You are slowly getting tired because you're moving toward the evening. Um, You know, you're shedding skin. You're taking in oxygen. There's all kinds of stuff going on in your system. But I would say all of you are relatively balanced in the sense that you're all here. You're not dead. You're not sick. You're um, alive, etc. So... But, you know, that will shift unless we keep doing things, right? You'd better sleep tonight, you'd better eat, you better use the bathroom at some point. So I think um, the aim is not so much that we're trying to get some kind of a perfect system and keep it there. It's another thing meditators fall into. We're going to get that ideal self and then just live in that. No, (laughs) we can always be moving, we always move toward balance. That's the movement. The movement is toward balance from wherever we are. And it's a... It's a dynamic process. So I've mostly been focusing on this inner ecology, this sense of how do we work with this complicated system. And it's only complicated in one sense. You know, it will be self-regulating when it's when it's balanced. But then I want to move outward and say that the fourth principle and the last one is that Cultivating an inner inner ecology in ourselves kind of spills out into understanding our place in the wider system of living in our family, in our workplace, in our society, on this planet. Um, so I mentioned, 
you know, letting go. You know, we get our inner ecology somehow balanced and then let go in a certain way. What are we let going, letting go of? And, and how are we doing that? I would say that we let go into kind of being the whole system, in a sense. So we move into a place that has you know, less center, not much center, and not much agent. No agent, and yet things are happening. There's a lovely quote um, that is from a, a set of kind of celebratory verses from a practitioner who had realized um, awakening. And their instruction, turning around and speaking to the rest of us, their instruction is, be what knows the arising, like an oak peg in hard ground, stand firm in awareness that knows. So there's a sense of moving more into the awareness, being less concerned with the particular objects. When it says, be what knows the arising, it means the arising of experience, which we continually experience as our dynamic beings. So instead of focusing so hard on what is this, how do I deal with it, um, more like be what knows that. And then this is like standing like an oak peg in hard ground, you know, we're just there in the awareness. If it sounds a little unusual, it's because... um, it comes from the Dzogchen tradition, which is a branch of, the, of Tibetan Buddhism. But it's interesting to note that that exact phrase, be, it says, be what knows the arising. So there's, also, there's a legend um, from the Thai forest tradition, which is our own tradition, that says that um, uh, when Ajahn Chah was practicing before he became a great teacher of the Thai forest tradition, he was practicing out in the forest, and he met another master named Ajahn Mun, who was, uh, in fact, the person who gave him transmission, in a sense. And what, but they had a very, just a very brief encounter. It wasn't like he was a longtime student. And my understanding is that what Ajahn Mun said to Ajahn Shah is, be the knowing. And that changed his entire practice, kind of, to, to such a degree that he considered himself a, a lineage, you know, from the lineage of Ajahn Mun. So as we let go into balancing our inner self, we can also balance the, the outer part. I want to offer this poem from Lynn Unger. The universe does not revolve around you. The stars and planets spinning through the ballroom of space dance with one another quite outside your small life. You cannot hold gravity or seasons. Even air and water inevitably invade your grasp. Why not, then, let go? You could move through time like a shark through water, neither restless nor ceasing, absorbed in and absorbing the native element. Why pretend you can do otherwise? The world comes in at every pore, mixes in your blood before breath releases you into the world again. Did you think the fragile boundary of your skin could build a wall? Listen, every molecule is humming its particular pitch. Of course, you are a symphony. Whose tune do you think the planets are singing as they dance? So, easing up. Easing up on our practice. It's 
often so tight and so small and so specific. Um, Thinking about an ecology instead of a single plant, I hope, allows us to treat this as a more natural process, what we're doing. It's not such a big engineering project. It's more of a balancing of nature. I wanted to share a little um, aspiration that I sometimes use when I am so inclined, which is, may I become the Dharma, align fully with the Dharma, and hence disappear. So may it be so for all of us. Thank you. We have a little time for some questions or comments if you, um, if you have any. Yes. Right. A lot of self-acceptance, yes. Right, yeah, there's the, the tundra and the taiga and the desert and the forest. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure, we have to we have to feel into our own mind. I guess the way you understand an ecology is that you go camping <laughs> or trekking, and so there's maybe a sense of um, yeah, feeling in and letting the weather touch us a little bit, and um, and then often we can. Um, I think the nice thing I, I'm gonna I'm really going with this ecological analysis analogy now um, is that most ecologies will have within them um, the tools that are needed to live there in a certain way and so um, I don't think there's any shortage of practices and tools and teachings available to us in our society luckily so it's a little bit of sense of trial and error but I I think with complete confidence um, we'll be able to find what it is that we need but I love your notion of the self-acceptance and just understanding, oh, because if we look across the fence, which we always do, right, we say, oh, it's so much greener over there. How come I don't have more trees like that? It's like, well, you know, you got a different ecosystem. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. And, um, and I just really appreciate it. Mm. Thank, you. Thank you. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is a um, this is a great question. It's um, when we think a lot when we think about if it's so natural. Um, when do we get to intervene? <laughs> you know, when does something have to happen? But there are cases where ecologies really are out of balance in certain ways that can be worked on. Like for example, the hole in the ozone layer that was a problem, and then uh, the uh, the banning of CFCs literally actually affected that. It's one of the few sort of ecological successes that we've had in the prior century. Um, so there are cases where uh, we'll find an ecosystem that's out of balance and something needs to be introduced, like um, there are cases where they put predators into a system and it helps um, control some of the other animals. Sorry if you don't like the analogy that includes killing, but um, we're talking about nature here. Um, or cases where there's been... Um, usually the problem with systems getting out of balance is that there wasn't awareness of something. You know, It's like we just didn't know that if we did too much of that it would result in erosion or a hole in the ozone layer or you know, overfishing, whatever it is. And so often what needs to be inserted is awareness and knowledge and this is the same thing in our mind, is that the reason that we have so much anxiety, for example, is you know, not because we're bad people or because you know, we, uh, it was a mistake somehow or that somebody else caused it. You know, if all those people hadn't done that, then I wouldn't be so anxious. Maybe that, maybe so, but that's like, you know, it's a bigger system. And so instead we can look in terms of, well, I just, I just didn't know that that was not a healthy response. You know, I generated the response of anxiety or depression or fear or anger because that's all I could do at the time. I was overwhelmed and that's what came up and then it became a habit and I kept doing it. And then after a while you've got this, you know, problems in your body or um, difficulty sleeping or something out of balance, right? And so um, instead what we say is, oh... Now I understand, now I see that there's suffering associated with anxiety, for example, that I didn't see before. And so bringing in that mindful awareness and that kindness and the compassion, already you're helping with the problem, uh, quote-unquote, if there's anything bad, right? Um, But it's out of balance. And so we can then adopt healthier methods, like we would plant trees when something is eroding. It's a, it's, we don't have to do nothing and just say, well, it's natural that this is eroding, so I'll just wait for the whole cliff to fall into the sea and take my house with it. Uh, we don't have to do that. Um, but we do have to know. We have to know what's going on. And generally, knowing more is better. Like these albino redwoods, they just didn't know that they had this uh, good quality of taking toxins out of the soil. So it's, a, it's an urge for mindfulness, for investigation, and for compassion. Yeah. True. Um, I'm taking the April class. Oh, yeah. Now, and this month we're working on light effort and having those four aspects of right effort as um, approaches. They're not really tools, but they're considerations. So you can figure out what might be skillful for addressing the system by figuring out what you have to stop doing right. that's causing a problem or what you have to stop 
start doing <laughs> right. how you can prevent doing something else that further screws things up. And then once you get it sort of cooking, how do you maintain How do you maintain it? Balance? Exactly. Gently considering agency in the dynamic of a complex system. Yep. Very well said. Thank you. Yes. As you mentioned, a couple of thoughts uh, came to my mind about fatalistic versus accepting. Mm. Fatalistic versus accepting, right. yes. The second one is being reactive versus being responsive. Mm hmm. Yeah, if I can, you know, draw that toward the images we're working with, um, if we uh, focus mostly on ourselves and trying to navigate ourselves through this bigger world, um, it can be reactive very easily. Whereas um, I've benefited from the image of being what's called situation-centric instead of self-centric. So. Um, whatever situation we're in with a group of people, we think about the total situation. Um, and, you know, we're part of that, so it's not like our interests are being overridden. But instead of saying, okay, I'm here and there's these four other people, how am I going to get what I want? Um, it's more like taking the whole system into consideration. That's the sense of having um, no center to what we're doing as we let go. And that's much more responsive and usually has better results, too. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. There's a lot, lots to think about and, and sort of turn over. One thing that the ecological metaphor might help me with, I think, is uh, setting aside this persistent notion that somewhere up in my head there's a little control room, a little man that's sitting and pushing the buttons and taking right. in charge of everything. If it's an ecology, if there's no one center, there's no one um, agent that's, right. that's behind everything that's happening. Yeah. Your, your language about exploring nooks and crannies and corners of the mind, the different pieces is helpful getting them um, paying attention to what's actually there. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Do you, can you cite any 
lessons from nature or examples uh, from nature that might help us contemplate the issues in our society today and maybe even give us some Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, there is certainly imbalance in the larger system. Um, I think it's, it's ever been thus. It's not that it's especially... I don't know that it's especially worse now than it's been at various times in the past. Um, but I think what all... And I wish there were some easy utopian solution I could come up with. But the earth is also, uh, and the world society is also a dynamic system. And I think um, we need to look at this issue of the awareness and the consciousness. So, you know, we have this whole complex mind-body system which has been functioning by itself long before you started mindfulness practice, right? And then suddenly we start being mindful and we think we need to take over and control everything. Of course, it doesn't work that way. So, but on the where where is this consciousness in the larger system? It's the same thing. We need some kind of awareness, and the world has been creating more and more of that as it say globalizes. Um, suddenly, we are way more interconnected than we were several centuries ago. Quite suddenly, right? I don't know that we're prepared for that in an awareness kind of sense. Um, the internet is a nice thing, but it's not quite the tool of awareness that it could be yet. And I don't know that our little individual minds are quite ready for that yet. Um, so, you know, I hadn't really intended to go here with this talk, and I don't know that I have clear images about this. Other people, I think, have more developed images of this, but I can, as I you know, work with my own mind-body system, which is plenty complex enough. And I try to work with, say, the group of people that I'm with. Um, I can start to get a sense of, well, maybe eventually there could be um, some larger kind of consciousness that could be appropriate for regulating larger-scale systems. We have small outlets, you know, like I said, the Internet, the media, you know, ways that we communicate. But generally what you want to be doing is having more awareness, getting parts of a system connected to other parts of it. So if there are ways that we can accomplish that through our life and our work, I think it leads in a good direction at this point, given that we are suddenly more interconnected than I think we have the awareness for. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we can also have a lot of compassion. You know, we're not ready... We're not ready for what just happened, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, that's those are kind of what what comes from your prompt. That. Well, this is also a big issue, and it's a good one. You're asking, you know, maybe negative emotions serve a purpose. I certainly implied that in some of what I said. Um, but remember that the aim, there is an aim to practice, which is to eliminate suffering and its causes and its roots. 
And the roots that the Buddha has identified are the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And those work pretty well for me, I've in my experience of examining my mind. So um, to take the example of anger, since I used it earlier and since it's a common one, um, if, if one speaks about anger as a teacher, someone will always raise their hand and say, I think my anger is useful, it propels me to do important actions in the world, etc. Um, and I think without rejecting that idea, we can say maybe more broadly that anger is always a signal. Um, it should not be ignored. It's, anger is not unimportant. It signals, what does it signal? It signals that something is out of balance. That's the one of the functions of it, if you will. Um, however, when we look at what the experience of anger is and what the effect of it in the world is, speaking of the large consciousness, you know, adding our anger to that, it's obvious that anger comes from the root of hatred, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. And what we're cultivating is the, the wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. We want to be acting more from those. Those are the agents that can bring balance. There are agents that bring imbalance to systems. They don't, they don't become imbalanced randomly. So maybe these things can serve some kind of a warning function but in the end, um, we have to pay attention to the valence of uh, what kind of energy we're bringing. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, there will eventually be a conflation. Remember, the, the ecology image is not perfect. No image is perfect. Um, when I evoke that, what happens in Western minds is that we evoke science, which is uh, values neutral. And spiritual practice is not values neutral. It has an ethical component. Um, So we are trying to uh, cultivate the good roots and diminish and eventually uproot greed, hatred, and delusion from our mind and our heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.